Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am in Hebrews 11, verse 23. We're in the middle of the faith chapter. Our context is this. In the first part of Hebrews chapter 11, the author talked about the faith of the antediluvians, Noah, Abel. In the second part of the chapter, verses 8 through 22, the author talked about the faith of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And now here in part 3 of Hebrews 11, Verses 23 through 31, we're going to talk about, the author is going to talk about the faith of Moses. And at the end, in our next audio, we'll talk about the faith of the judges. All of this talk about faith, the author begins because of what he knew the Hebrew Christians were going through. They were going through severe persecution. And in chapter 10, he told them to hold fast to their confession and don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together because he knew they were being persecuted and he knew it was going to take faith to get through the persecution and that's why he's giving the Hebrew Christians all these examples of faith to get them to hold fast to their confession. So we start in verse 23 of Hebrews 11. By faith, after Moses was born, he was hidden by his parents for three months because they saw that the child was beautiful and they did not fear the king's edict. This is the kind of faith that Peter and the apostles showed in Acts 5.21 when they were told by the Sanhedrin they couldn't preach the gospel of Jesus anymore. And Peter replied, and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than men. Because remember the king, it said, kill all the Hebrew babies that are boys that are born. But the parents said, no, we're going to obey God rather than men. We're not going to murder our son. Now, who were the parents of Moses? We see in Exodus 6.20 that Amrad married his father's sister, Jochebed, and she bore him Aaron and Moses. So Amran was Moses' father, and Jochebed was Moses' mother. We see them listed also in, in a, general, a genealogy in Numbers 26.58-29. This is in a Levite family group. The name of Amram's wife was Jochebed, a descendant of Levi. Born to Levi in Egypt, she bore to Amran Aaron, Moses, and their sister Miriam. So these are some famous Levites. Stephen tells us in Acts 7, Acts 7, verse 20, that when Moses was born, his parents hid him for three months at home. But after he got too big, they had to put him in a little, in a little tiny ark, if you will, a little floating cradle, and put him in the papyrus, and the Pharaoh's daughter adopted him. And that's how Moses grew up in Pharaoh's daughter's house. So Stephen tells us the three months in Acts 7.20, at this time Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight. He was cared for in his father's home three months. And we know that also from Exodus 2.2, the woman became pregnant, that's Jochebed, became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months because of the king's edict to kill all the male, the male children of the Hebrew slaves. Here's the edict, Exodus 1.16. When you help the Hebrew women give birth, observe them as they deliver. If the child is a son, kill him. But if it's a daughter, she may live. That's what the Hebrew midwives were told. And in verse 22, Exodus 1, Pharaoh then commanded all his people, You must throw every son born to the Hebrews into the Nile, but let every daughter live. So he was basically, the Pharaoh was practicing gender genocide. And the Hebrew midwife says, Ah, 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 we're not going to do that civil disobedience there folks remember you obey the authorities until they tell you something that is utterly unscriptural immoral and opposed to god's holy laws you don't obey those kind of commands any more than if you were in germany and hitler said let's put some jews in the gas ovens you and and 
you say, no, I'm not going to do that. And somebody comes to you and says, but the Bible says you're supposed to obey those who have rule over you and who have authority over you and obey the authorities. Uh, 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 uh. It means obey the authorities when they're behaving like authorities are supposed to do, when they put fear into the hearts of criminals. Hebrews 11:24. By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Now, when did this occur? Well, when Moses took part with the Israelites against the Egyptians. Remember, he fled to Midian, identified with the Hebrew slaves. He says, no, I'm not going to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Now, the Pharaoh's daughter had found Moses in a basket in the Nile where Moses' mother Jochebed had left him, and left him, and then the Pharaoh's daughter raised Moses as her own daughter. And so Moses was headed for a plush life in the palace. Maybe would have become Pharaoh one day. But Moses had faith. He saw through the eyes of faith that the promises to Abraham would be fulfilled and that the Israelites would spread over Israel because of those promises of seed to Abraham. And so that's why he said, take, and that's why he said, I'm going to identify with these Hebrew slaves. I'm not going to identify with Moses, with Pharaoh. Pharaoh is not Yahweh. And this, of course, is the story all throughout history. It's the people of God are always subject to persecution by the civil authorities. And when they refuse to bow their knee to whatever civil authority God is trying to demand their worship and allegiance, they say, nope, we're not going to do it. That takes a lot of faith. We go to verse 25, Hebrews 11, middle of a sentence here. So let me go back to 24. She refused to be, uh, Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, verse 25, and chose to suffer with the people of God rather than to enjoy the short-lived pleasure of sin. He was 40 years old at the time when he left Pharaoh's palace and went to live with the Hebrews. The author of the book of Hebrews here is making a parallel. The Hebrews could suffer persecution with the people of God. The Christians, just like Moses, suffered with the people of God, the Israelites in Egypt. So you guys, you know, suffer persecution with the Christians here and don't go running back to Judaism. If you do, you can do that. You can enjoy the short-lived pleasures of sin within Judaism and trample on the Son of God, profane his holy blood. You could do that. But it might be better to suffer persecution with the people of God. So that's what the point of this exhortation was. Now notice that the author says that living in Pharaoh's house would be enjoying short-lived pleasure of sin. Why did he say living in the Egyptian palace was sin? The NIV Study Bible and John Gill just refer to the luxury and prestige of the Egyptian palace. But folks, luxury and prestige is not per se sin. It's often identified with it, but there's nothing wrong with being luxurious and prestigious. I think that, in my opinion, this is my opinion, take it with a grain of salt, that the reason the author called staying in the palace sin is because Moses would be identifying with the Pharaoh's government, which was at that time oppressing the Israelite slaves. So it's not just mere luxury that was the sin. It was, man, they were treating the Israelites horribly. And you know the story. We go to Hebrews 11, verse 26. For he, that's Moses, considered the reproach because of the Messiah to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, since his attention was on the reward. The reward of being identified with those who are going to receive the promises of Abraham, who are going to receive land, offspring, and blessings to the nations. That sure looked like it was a long way away when you are a disgraced minister of the Pharaoh because of regime change in Egypt. And then you leave the house of Pharaoh 
and you identify with a bunch of slaves, gave up all that wealth. And boy, Egypt was wealthy. The treasures of Egypt. You did all that because you saw the reward by the eyes of faith, the fulfillment of the promises to Abraham. Now this verse says, For he considered the reproach because of the Messiah, the Christos, the Christ, in the Greek. When did Moses ever consider the reproach because of the Messiah? He didn't know who the Messiah was. He didn't know who Jesus was. Now, Adam Clark says that many have difficulty with this. How could Moses know about the Messiah? Here's his, here's his quote. It was just as easy for God Almighty to reveal Christ to Moses as it was for him to reveal him to Isaiah or to the shepherds or to John the Baptist or to manifest him in the flesh. So Adam Clark says, that's no problem. Moses could have known about the Messiah. Well, that's very optimistic. The NIV study Bible, I think, is more realistic. It says that Moses' understanding of the details about the Messiah was very limited, but he chose to be associated with the people who had the hope of the Messiah. So Moses knew about the Messiah. He didn't know exactly who he was and all the details about his coming, but he knew that there was a promise of the Messiah. The Messianic promise was known to the Jews for millennia. They knew about the Messiah. And so this is what is being referred to here. Moses wants to see the Messiah come through those promises to Abraham. This shows that Jesus was in the Old Testament. As Steve Ackerson says, those who had faith in the promises of the Old Testament also had faith in Jesus who was to come. John Gill says this, Christ was made known to the Old Testament saints, and they believed in him. He was typified by sacrifices which they offered, and they were reproached for his sake, for the sacrifices they offered, and for the worship they performed, for their faith in the Messiah, and their expectation of him. I don't know when the Jews were reproached for setting up those sacrifices. I'm not sure what Gill means by that. But the point is, is that by looking at the types, the Old Testament Jews could see the anti-type. By looking at the shadow, those sacrifices, the animal sacrifices, they could see the substance, the reality, Jesus the Messiah. Here's another quote from Clark. Although it does not appear these things were known to the Hebrews at large, yet it is evident that there were sufficient intimations given to Moses given it to Moses concerning the great deliverer of whom himself was a type that determined his conduct. Well, how about the famous prophecy in Deuteronomy 18.15? This is God speaking to Moses. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. Well, this is Moses talking to the people. I'm sorry. The Lord your God will raise up for you, the people of Israel, a prophet like me, a prophet like Moses. From among your own brothers, you must listen to him. And that's remember that the people asked John the Baptist, are you the prophet? This is the prophet they're talking about, the Messiah. Now, because of the difficulty of saying, how did Moses know anything about the Messiah in order to bear his reproach? Some people have taken alternate views of the Greek there. The Holman Christian Study Bible translates Christos as the Messiah using the Jewish term, excuse me, using the Aramaic term or the Hebrew term. But the Greek term is Christos, the, the anointed one, the Christ. Now, John Gill and Adam Clark mentioned the possibility that we could translate it this way, for he considered the reproach because of the anointed ones to be greater wealth, because of the anointing, excuse me, because of the anointing, referring to the anointing of the people of God in the Old Testament, the Hebrews, as servants of God, because people who are anointed, they're anointed for service, service either as a prophet, a priest, or a king. Well, in my opinion, that's sort of a stretch. He considered the reproach because of the people of God, the anointed people of God, possible maybe, but I think it's a stretch. Jameson Fawcett Brown says the author of Hebrews could be taken Old Testament Israel as a type of Christ. So it's clear that Moses stood reproach for Old Testament Israel, and the author of Hebrews identifies Old Testament Israel with New Testament Israel, the church, and Jesus the Messiah is head of the church. So when Moses suffers reproach for the old Israel, 
It's the same thing as suffering reproach for the new Israel. Again, that's nice, but I think it's a stretch. I think it's just because Moses had an idea that the Messiah was coming, and he knew it was coming through those Hebrew slaves, the descendants of Abraham. And that's why he stood with the slaves rather than with the Pharaoh and all the treasures of Egypt. Now, 1920-something, I forgot when, Howard Carter found Ken Tutankhamun's, Tutankhamun's tomb in Egypt. It's a very famous story. It's one of the, I think it's the only tomb that's ever been found intact. It had been robbed by grave robbers, and it was just full of gold, several thousand pounds. That's You can't calculate how much several thousand pounds of gold's worth in today's. I mean, that's a ton of money. So Egypt had a lot of treasures. They had gold mines in Nubia. I think they had copper mines in Sinai. They could get the gold. They they had gold running out of their ears. In fact, a lot of times these foreign dignitaries would send letters to the Egyptian pharaoh and says, you know, everybody says that gold is as common as dust on the street. So how about send me some? It's amazing how people just openly say, give me some gold. It doesn't mean anything to you Egyptians. You got so much of it. That's what Moses gave up. His attention was on the reward. We go to verse 27, Hebrews 11. By faith he, that's Moses, left Egypt behind, not being afraid of the king's anger, for Moses persevered as one who sees him who is invisible. Now there's two options as to when Egypt left, when Moses left Egypt behind. One is his flight to Midian, which is in the Sinai Peninsula, the eastern end of it, and also across the Gulf of Aqaba, all the way into southern Jordan or northern Saudi Arabia, up in that area, a long way away from wherever the capital of the Pharaoh's capital was. It was probably in Memphis at the time, maybe, which is in, on, in the northern right south of the delta, but far enough away from mainstream Egypt to where you're safe. Now, he fled there when he was about 40 years old. Let's read the scriptures, Exodus 2, 11 through 15. Years later, after Moses had grown up, he went out to his own people and observed their forced labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. Looking all around and seeing no one, he struck the Egyptian dead and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, Why are you attacking your neighbor? Who made you a leader and judge over us? The man replied, Are you planning to kill me as you kill the Egyptian? Aha, so Moses' killing of the Egyptian had become known. Then Moses became afraid and thought, What I did is certainly known. When Pharaoh heard about this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in the land of Midian and sat down by a well. Now, notice in this passage, it says, Moses became afraid and thought. What I did is certainly known. But in our verse, Hebrews 11:27, by faith he, Moses, left Egypt behind, not being afraid of the king's anger. Now, so there's a problem. The fleeing was supposed to be when Moses was not afraid. But he, Exodus 2:14 says, then Moses became afraid and thought, what I did is certainly known. Well, those of the scholars who want to defend the fleeing to Midian as what this verse in Hebrews is referring about, say that Exodus 2.14 doesn't say expressly he was afraid of the Pharaoh's anger when he fled to Midian. This the NIV study Bible says that. Well, my response to that is, well, what other person would Moses be afraid of? Surely not the Hebrew slaves. They weren't going to do anything to him for killing an Egyptian. Yes, of course it's the Pharaoh's anger. So I don't think that holds a bit of water. And if you say it was Pharaoh's anger, then you can the NIV study Bible makes a further point. Exodus 2.14 doesn't say expressly that it was because of Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's anger he fled. In other words, Pharaoh might have been angry, but Moses might have fled because of somebody else's anger. And to which I say, whose anger? This is, no, I don't think this is going to do. 
John Gill says that it took great courage to slow the, slew the to slay the Egyptians. So we can't say that Moses was really afraid of Pharaoh. And so that means in verse 27, Hebrews 11, when Moses left Egypt behind, he was not afraid of Pharaoh because he killed one of Pharaoh's servants. All right, well, continuing on with the idea, this is the flight to Midian. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown points out that the order of, of, of events in Hebrews favors this option of Moses fleeing to Midian because it happened before the Passover in verse 28. The Exodus is not, is not in proper time order. In verse 27, we hear, if we assume this fleeing is not to Midian, but is fleeing Egypt on the Exodus, then we have in verse 27, the Exodus coming before the Passover, which is mentioned in verse 28. To which I respond, well, in verse 27, if Moses is fleeing Egypt on the Exodus, it makes sense to go in verse 28 to mention how that got started, which was the Passover. That doesn't mean it. the lack of time order there is not really all that significant, in my opinion. Jameson Fawcett and Brown comes up with another idea to save the Midian option, fleeing the Midian option. The not being afraid could refer to Moses' courage in returning to Pharaoh after the murder. And so then you could say, by faith he left Egypt to go to Midian, not being afraid of the king's anger when he returned. All of which is very, very clever, but it just makes more sense to say that it's when Moses left Egypt behind on the Exodus. He was not afraid of the king's anger because if you read the story of his confrontations with Pharaoh, he walked right into Pharaoh's presence and did miracles in front of him and pronounced plagues on him. I mean, he didn't show any fear of Pharaoh at all. It makes a much better story. In my humble opinion, this is talking about when Moses left Israel on the Exodus. As he left on the Exodus, Moses persevered. He had to wander around for 40 years with a bunch of rebellious people as one who sees him who is invisible. He saw God. He says, God, I'm going to get these people into the promised land because you promised Abraham land, offspring, and blessings, and I'm going to get the people there. And we're going to fulfill those promises. So Moses saw God who was invisible. How do you see God who is invisible? You know he's there even though you can't see him physically. You see him with the eyes of faith. The author is referring, re, returning, returning to his theme of faith. Hebrews 11.1 1. Now faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. Moses endured in faith for 40 years. He could not see the God who might deliver him. He could not see the end of his trial. Now, the fact that God is said to be invisible in this verse, Adam Clark says that the author is implicitly comparing Israel's gods, Israel's God with Egypt's gods. Quote from Adam Clark, By calling the divine being the invisible, the apostle distinguishes him from the gods of Egypt, who were visible, corporeal, gross, and worthless. The Israelites were worshippers of the true God, and this worship was not tolerated in Egypt. His pure and spiritual worship could never comport with the adoration of oxen, goats, monkeys, leeks, and onions. <laughs> we go to verse 28, Hebrews 11. By faith, this is Moses. By faith he instituted the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch the, Israelite, the Israelites. Now when Moses instituted the Passover, he didn't know the destroying angel was coming, so he instituted the Passover in faith. He, was, he just did what he was told. He sprinkled the blood on the doorpost, so when the angel came over, the angel saw the blood and said, we're not going to kill who's in this house. Wonderful type, of course, of being under the blood of Christ. We can read all about the Passover in Exodus 12, and the sprinkling of the blood. The blood of the Passover lamb was sprinkled on the lintel and doorpost of every Hebrew's house, and the Hebrews were saved by the blood of the lamb because the destroying angel did not kill those who were in the house. And so they were literally under the blood. 
perfect type of us being under the blood of Christ and saved from death because of Christ's blood. Hebrews 11.29 By faith they, that's the Israelites, crossed the Red Sea as though they were on dry land. When the Egyptians attempted to do this, they were drowned. Now, when the author says by faith they crossed the Red Sea, that's only a minority of the departing Israelites had faith. The majority were grumbling complainers. But they went along, so I guess they had faith in the sense that they followed Moses. God delivered them anyway, including the complainers. There's one more example of a remnant accomplishing God's plan. They crossed the Red Sea. You can read that in Exodus 14 and 15. The Israelites walked by faith. The Egyptians walked by sight. They said, oh, look at that dry land. We can, walk, we can cross here. And they walked across the dry land, got all bogged down in the mud, and then the wind stopped blowing, and the water fell in on them and drowned them. It's a big contrast with the people who had faith. They crossed and survived. So faith is stronger than sight if you believe in God. Hebrews 11.30, By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after being encircled by the Israelites for seven days. Now Jericho was the first great obstacle to the conquest of the promised land after the Exodus, and that battle was won by faith, without a physical battle, without a military battle. Now it seems that this generation of Israelites seemed to have more faith than the one that left Egypt. It was a different generation, of course. The people under 20 had survived, but those over 20 had died and, been, and died in the wilderness because of their sins after they had wandered around for 40 years. So maybe the new generation had more faith. The story of Jericho falling down can be read in Joshua chapter 6. Now, when the Israelites encircled Jericho for seven days, that's not a natural thing to do. The natural thing to do would be to build siege engines during those seven days. But the faith thing to do was to walk around the city for seven days. Faith got the job done in seven days. How long would a siege have lasted? Jameson, Foster, and Brown point out that sieges often last for years. Faith works much better. Verse 31, Hebrews 11. By faith, Rahab the prostitute received the spies in peace and didn't perish with those who disobeyed. How did Rahab exhibit her faith? Well, she sees this army out there. She doesn't know whether the army's going to win or whether the army's going to lose, so she betrays the pagans amongst whom she's living there in Jericho. Now, that took faith because if she was wrong and turned out she was a traitor that let a foreign enemy in to destroy the native city, they would have executed her if they'd have survived the attack. That could have happened to her. She was risking her life, but she believed that, that those were God's people and that the miracles that were done in Egypt were done by a God of such power that he was going to win. And remember, Jericho's a walled city. If you used a natural siege to knock the place down, it would have taken years. But she believed that these Israelites were messengers of the Most High God, Yahweh. So by faith, she, Rahab the prostitute received the spies in peace, the, Israeli spy, the, the Israelite spies in peace. Now, she's called a prostitute here. And you might think that it's strange that a prostitute would be listed in the Faith Hall of Fame in chapter 11. Well, some people have sort of blanched at that. And so they come up with some reasons why she wasn't really a prostitute. I don't think they're dispositive, but I'll mention them to you. Here's what the NIV Study Bible and John Gill says. She was a prostitute before she found her newfound faith. She used to be a prostitute, but by the time the spies showed up, she was not a prostitute anymore. That's argument number one in defense of Rahab's honor. Argument number two is the Hebrew word used for Rahab here, used for prostitute here, means innkeeper and not a prostitute, as John Gill and Adam Clark point out. And they say it would be strange that Salmon, in the genealogy mentioned in Matthew 1.15, Salmon, like the, like the pink fish that swims upstream, 
he was a prince of Israel and he married Rahab. That was strange that a, that a prince of Israel would marry a former prostitute. And John Gill points out, look, she's praised here as having faith and Paul somewhere else praises her for having faith. Why would they be praising a prostitute? As John Gill says, quote, the constant use of the word in this form, talking about prostitute as innkeeper, in this form, the testimonies of two apostles. I think Gill is saying the author of Hebrews is Paul, which I don't agree with. So what he's talking about, the testimony of two apostles, I believe he's talking about James, who, who says something positive about Rahab, which I'll mention in a minute, and also Hebrews. So the testimonies of two apostles and her making no mention of her husband and children when she agreed with the spies confirm the generally received character of her that she was an harlot. So Gill says that she was a prostitute. And another argument to that she was a prostitute is that a lot of innkeepers were actually keeping houses of prostitution because that's what the ends. It's kind of like massage parlors. You know, you can go to good ones, you can go to bad ones. The bad ones, they got prostitutes in there. I learned that the hard way in China. They got great. They had Jin Gui is the precious and honorable massage places were wonderful. But boy, if you've gotten one that wasn't Jin Gui, you were propositioned to in manners that are quite embarrassing and which cannot be mentioned on this audio. So was she a prostitute or was she not a prostitute? Well, let's just say she was a prostitute. The NIV Study Bible says, well, therefore, this shows that God can save any miserable sinner and raise him to eternal dignity. John Gill says, this is, quote, a wonderful and singular instance of the free, sovereign, sovereign, distinguishing, powerful, and efficacious grace of God. Now, I tend to think that Rahab was a prostitute and God saved her. And even if, even if you can't prove it beyond a shadow of a doubt, I know God can save prostitutes. He saved murderers. He saved the Apostle Paul. Prostitutes were really looked down on, so this is why it's hard for people to realize that Rahab as a prostitute would be in the Hebrews Hall of Faith fame, Faith Hall of Fame. Matthew twenty one thirty one, this is the parable of the two sons. Jesus said, Which of the two did his father's will? That's one son said, I'm not gonna go, but later on he did, and then one son said, I'll go, but he never went. Which of the two did the father's will? The first he said, that's the one who came late to the vineyard. Jesus said to them, I assure you, tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God before you, before the son who said he would work in the vineyard but didn't go. You aren't as good as a tax collector and a prostitute. I just love seeing that an IRS tax collector paired up with prostitute. <laughs> That's what, how they will look down on in that society. Not good. But at any rate, God is not concerned about it. He'll even save a prostitute. Now, I know it's hard to believe, but he'll even save a tax collector. He'll save an IRS agent. If he can save an IRS agent, by golly, he can save a prostitute. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, received the spies in peace. That means receive them into her house there on the wall. And let's buzz through Joshua 2, picking out several scriptures to get a feel for the story. And then I'll finish it up with a quotation from James. Joshua 2.1, Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two men as spies from the Acacia Grove, saying, Go and scout the land, especially Jericho. So they left, and they came to the house of a woman, a prostitute named Rahab, and stayed there. Joshua 2.4, But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. So she said, Yes, the men did come to me, but I didn't know where they were from. That's when her native compadres asked where the spies were. Verse 6, Joshua 2, But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them among the stalks of flax that she had arranged on the roof. Verses 8 through 11 of Joshua 2, before the men fell asleep, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that the terror of you has fallen on us. And everyone who lives in the land is panicking because of you. 
For we have heard how the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to Sion and Og, the two Amorite kings you completely destroyed across the Jordan. When we heard this, we lost heart, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. And there, you see, Rahab is expressing her faith in God, and that's why she's a person of faith. James mentions her in his letter, James 2, verse 25, and in the same way wasn't Rahab, the prostitute, also justified, that means vindicated, by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by a different route. So, in other words, Rahab's faith was shown by works. James, of course, makes the, the proposition that all faith has works in it eventually. The works don't cause the faith, but faith will ultimately cause works. There's no such thing as a mental faith that doesn't show itself in outward acts, a change in behavior. And so here Rahab the prostitute is a perfect example of how faith works with works. Rahab had faith, but her work was she saved the nation of Israel by shielding those spies. Faith has works. And as a result of her faith, she didn't perish. Our author says in Hebrews 11, verse 31, we read in Joshua 6, 22 through 25, we can see this happy outcome. Joshua said to the two men who had scattered the land, Go to the prostitute's house and bring the woman out of there and all who were with her, just as you promised her. So the young men who had scouted went in and brought out Rahab and her father, mother, brothers, and all who belonged to her. They brought, her, they brought out her whole family and settled them outside the camp of Israel. They burned up the city and everything in it, but they put the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron into the treasure of the Lord's house. However, Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute, her father's household, and all who belonged to her, because she hid the men Joshua had sent to spy on Jericho, and she lives in Israel to this day, to the day that the author of Joshua had written his book. I don't know when that was. I assume it's in the 1200 somewhere, but I don't think people know exactly who wrote the book of Joshua. But she and her family hung around Israel. I guess they became proselytes of some sort. She was told, if you recall the story, she was told to hang a scarlet thread out of her window so she would be scared, spared in the attack. And the Israelites were faithful to their word. They honored Rahab's faith and saved her. Ladies and gentlemen, that's the end of the faith that was shown in the Exodus, the faith of Moses. In our next and last section of Hebrews 11, we will cover verses 32 through 40, and we will look at the faith that was exhibited during the time of the judges. I hope to see you next time. I hope you enjoyed this one. 